Thanks to Warby Parker for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. Get boutique quality, stylish eyewear and sunglasses at revolutionary prices. Try them yourself by going to warbyparker.com/fool to order your free home try-on kit with free shipping all around. It's Tuesday, April 18th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Supernova, David Kretzman, and from Stock Advisor and Motley Fool Options, Jim Mueller. Happy Tax Day, gentlemen! Oof. Everybody got their taxes paid up. Well, based on your reaction, David, I'm thinking. <laughs> no, I, I think I did, but it's still tax. There's something about Tax Day. Just, I filed uh, mine like a month and a half ago. Oh, see, yeah. Jim's Jim's the responsible adult. Yes, we need to. Yeah, be but more I, do, like Jim. I do it early when I get a refund. I, I wait till the last minute when I have to pay taxes. Smart, <laughs> very smart. Uh, we're going to dip into the full mailbag, but earnings palooza is underway. So we're going to start with Netflix. First quarter profits came in higher than expected, but subscriber growth a little bit lower than projected. And there's a bunch of things we can get into here. But uh, Jim, I'll just start with you first, and then to David. What's your headline for this quarter? So the headline for this quarter, I think, is that they're going to be raising more debt. Okay, um, they projected uh, when they reported in the first quarter. Uh, I'm sorry, the end of last year, uh, or earlier this year, they projected they're going to spend two billion dollars in free cash flow, negative two billion dollar free cash flow, and that's because they're still buying a lot of content to run that uh, that virtuous cycle: more members, more money, more. Good content, more members, and so on. And as long as that works, they'll be fine. They're profitable. Their operating profit came in really nice, 9.7 percent, uh, higher than the 7 percent uh, target they have for the year. Uh, and this is the first year where the management is actually uh, targeting and, and saying, "Okay, we're going to start become profitable, guys." I mean, we've been running for so long. Right. Uh, we're going to be become profitable, but they're saying seven percent target for the year. So they're going to uh, ramp up spending a little bit in the second quarter to bring that back down. From the 9.7 back down to 7% for the target, but uh, it's the free cash flow. And I mean, companies are in business to generate cash. And if you're not generating cash, you're going to have to raise cash somehow, which means they're going to be raising more debt. And a, and a line from the, uh, the release letter, uh, that's what they call it, dear shareholders, um, they call it. Um, that's so quaint. Yeah. <laughs> is that. Um, they're, they think their uh, leverage ratio is just fine. They say, uh, "I'm well, sorry, leverage ratio or whatever." No, <laughs> they actually call it uh, debt to total cap. And it took me a while. I thought for for a moment that they meant debt to capital, which is a is a common ratio, debt to total capital invested in the business. That's debt and stock shareholder equity, right? No, what they're talking is debt to market cap. Okay, and that kind of set me back. And they said we're well under ten percent compared to peers that are at thirty percent, seventy percent in that range. And it's true, Time Warner, thirty-one percent debt to market cap, and so. Uh, but Netflix has a debt to capital ratio of over fifty percent. It's about fifty-three percent, I think it is. Yeah. And you're talking about the first definition that you mentioned. Yeah, debt to capital. Mm-hmm. Invested capital, and so they're about fifty-three percent, while Time Warner sits at forty-eight percent, and so they can say we can leverage up because Time Warner's leveraged up, but it, it makes me a little nervous, really. David, what's your headline? Similar to to Jim's, uh, Netflix is reiterating that they will be in investment mode for years yeah. to come, and and really, yeah, like like Jim mentioned, but in the letter they said, yep, free cash flow is negative, and it'll be negative for. Years to come, many years, many years, yeah, and and I don't know if that was something is Wall that... Street was necessarily expecting. I th- I think 
people would would hope that the free cash flow would eventually become you know become positive sooner rather than later. But Netflix right now, they're I mean this year they're spending six billion dollars producing original content, and that number will continue to tick up for the uh, foreseeable future. And the numbers that Jim mentioned, uh, the the numbers that Netflix highlighted uh, in the letter. So right now they have about ten percent of their market cap is in debt. Compared to Lionsgate or Star, actually, it's closer to five percent. Is it okay? So yeah. it is under ten percent uh, compared to like Discovery Communications or Time Warner. Yeah, Netflix has a lower amount of debt compared to those companies, but those other companies are also producing a lot of. They're, they're producing positive free cash flow. So I don't think Netflix can. Nec- I, I feel like management is stretching their definitions a little bit to say no, it's totally okay. Don't worry, we'll we'll continue to bring on billions of debt. Don't worry about it. It's like, well, you guys are not producing positive free cash flow. You're actually your burn rate is increasing. So really it just comes down to the original content they're producing. Is it good enough, quality enough to bring in new subscribers, continue to keep uh, that subscriber growth going and retain existing subscribers? So uh, that 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 is what it comes down to. I think most people would say, yeah, their original content tends to be pretty good. It's an effective event. It, it's an effective investment, but there there are a lot of risks with the the cash flow situation there. They went out of their way to highlight the fact that uh, in terms because they have an, a deal with Adam Sandler, right? And they went out of their way to say over is it half a billion 500 million right yeah so 500 million hours of adam sandler movies have been watched by our customers since the ridiculous 6 i think is the name of yeah, the film since the first of their deal and they just extended the deal with with sandler too so on the one hand <laughs> yeah. i haven't met anyone who thought that was actually a good movie but apparently a lot of people have watched it well so i like and my, I, I did watch it but my reaction was the same as you two in this moment which was i just started laughing i said are you kidding me Five, like half a billion hours worth of adam sandler movies have been watched but the more i thought about it the more i think it was smart of them to call that out because one of the signals that sends to Wall Street, if you think about it, is we know what our customers are watching. We know what they're watching. We know what they want to watch. And all you people who made fun of us when we struck the deal with Adam Sandler in the first place, half a billion hours watched. So, how you like me now? In the letter, they also highlighted a couple of movies that or shows that flopped and one of them that they mentioned was the sequel to Crouching Tiger Hidden yes. Dragon where they said you know this was one that didn't work out so well so they are admitting that not everything that we're producing is a hit and going forward when they are investing this amount of money when they're burning this amount of cash and raising that amount of debt it really does sting for them to to have content that doesn't resonate well with audiences so i think that'll be something to to watch Actually, closely I, I like to hear that too because um if everything's a massive success then uh they might Loosen their uh, their controls on sure. on what they decide to invest in. So I like to hear that something uh, doesn't work out as as golden as most of the stuff they they're, do. They're they're paying attention to it. They're yeah. not just throwing money right. blindly. So it is good to see them, yeah, focusing on that. So there was a point in time with Netflix where international growth was being watched closely, and the number of countries that they were in. Uh, was a point of focus. Uh, now it seems like, <laughs> since we've run out of countries for them to actually go into, now it seems like the the opportunity and the challenge for Netflix is getting more subscribers in those countries. Is that like, can you, Jim? Can you look at this stock 
and say, okay, even with everything we've already said about the free cash flow, even with the fact that this is still kind of a pricey stock, is there still an enormous opportunity overseas? Because it kind of seems like there is. Honestly, I think there is. Okay, so fair disclosure, Netflix is my single largest position in my portfolio, and I've held Mine shares. Mine too. <laughs> held shares since uh, early two thousand seven. Okay, so I have a nice basis on these on the shares, and so that might be coloring my uh, viewpoint a little bit because so much of my uh, investments are tied up in this company. But having said that, I think the addressable market, which is what your question's about, Chris, is still quite large. So they're uh, decently penetrated in the U.S., about 50% or so uh, into all the households in the U.S. And they mentioned, uh, I can't remember if it was on the call or in the letter, they're uh, approaching that, actually it was on the call, David Wells, CFO, mentioned that in the call, that uh, some of their earlier international markets, uh, they didn't name them, but probably Canada or uh, uh, the Latin America maybe, but I I was thinking Canada probably, are reaching that level as well. And so that does demonstrate that, yeah, it can be popular enough and they can uh, figure out the right combination of, oh boy, just (laughs) sorry about that. (laughs) Sorry, I meant to Put the device on mute. <laughs> I don't know why my phone rings <laughs> or why, why it's uh, audible, so apologies. But um, they, they do figure out uh, in Europe, in Australia, in uh, Latin America, in Canada, they've figured out the mix of content, uh, locally grown, uh, international, from Hollywood in the U.S. or whatever, uh, that brings in subscribers and keeps them coming. And they're still working on that in Africa and Asia and, their, and, the, and the countries they launched in last year. But note, those, that launch last year was in the 120, 130 countries, was mostly mobile launch. And there are a bunch of mobile broadband accounts in the world, something like 3 billion of these things. And so if they can get the penetration in that, there is still a very big opportunity uh, for the company. I think HBO now has 128 million subscribers, and management said they expect Netflix to cross 100 million streaming subscribers this weekend. This weekend so, yeah. so there's still room for them to, to catch HBO potentially in the next probably couple of years. And then from there, as, as Jim mentioned, it's just a matter of grabbing more subscribers there. And it, management really is focusing on creating that, that local content, whether it's Mexico, Brazil, France, really, you name it, and trying to find the right proportion of local content as well as you know the, the global content that's available in every country. And I think another deal that will continue to, to really help Netflix is their deal with Disney. Uh, because this year, Rogue One will be streaming on Netflix, and future Star Wars films will be streaming on Netflix. A lot of the Pixar and Disney animation movies are already on there. I think that'll help continue to, to attract some new subscribers. Now, certainly here in the U.S., because that, that that deal with Disney, the, the movie releases is uh, U.S. and Canada only, I think. Certainly U.S. only. Uh, so they might renegotiate to get the worldwide rights to those things. Uh, but... Uh, Playing off your comment on on uh, productions unlike Mexico, uh, their Spanish content uh, uh, is not just Latin America, but the entire Spanish-speaking world across across the planet. So, um, their international content, their internationally produced content, is playing pretty well all around the world. Jim, you were talking about mobile. Uh, reminded me last week, uh, went with the family up to New York City for a few days. Took the train up, taking the train back on Friday. Crowded train, so uh, I was sitting. Uh, it's one of those situations where you take any seat that's available, and so I just let my kids fend for yourself. It's like you're on your own. Uh, <laughs> Dad, Dad needs to get a seat, so I'm sitting next to this guy, and uh, 
get settled and I, I plug in my earbuds and I start listening to a podcast and I close my eyes and I lean back and uh, the train's moving along and the guy next to me, um, I, I, again, my eyes are closed and I feel, I feel him shaking a little bit. And I just thought to myself, well, he's probably moving around in his seat, getting comfortable. And then it happened again. And then it happened a third time. And so I opened my eyes and sort of sit up. And I, I'm hoping the guy's okay, but I'm also sort of thinking, do I need to say something to this guy? Like, dude, what's your problem? And I open my eyes and I look over. He's, he's moving around because he is shaking with laughter because he's got his phone out. He is streaming Louis C.K.'s latest Netflix comedy <laughs> special, and he is silently just shaking with laughter at how funny it was. So I was like, you know what? I can't begrudge the guy that. That's a good sign. One, one other thing I'll quickly mention is uh, Rick Mineras, our fellow fool on, on Twitter, he mentioned that Netflix now has less than 4 million DVD by mail subscribers. Remember, Netflix used to do that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the first time. We like to it, call that the quickster part of the business. Right. <laughs> right. And that's the first time it's been below 4 million uh, subscribers since the third quarter of twenty of 2005. So, wow. 12 years. And it, it just goes to show that it, it would be riskier for Netflix not to be making those investments. Because if Netflix had not made that transition to streaming or original content, the, the company would be far less relevant today. So, they, they are paying a price for those investments, but it's probably a smart way to go. All right, let's move on to United Continental Airlines. First quarter profits came in higher than expected. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm—I almost don't care about this quarter. <laughs> I know that technically this quarter for United included the incident with the doctor getting dragged off the plane, but I'm already looking forward to three months from now to see what. I mean, that isn't that really the big question that I think is on certainly anyone who focuses on the business media and anyone who's investing. I think this is one of the most interesting questions that's going to play out in the short term right now, which is, how tangible is this outrage? There was plenty of outrage online over the doctor being dragged off the plane and you know coming back on the plane, being bloodied and all that. Does that translate into a meaningful decline in United Continental's business? If you like, you're if, both looking at me. <laughs> well, I'm just I, no, like I'm looking at both of you. Like I and I don't know. Like I just sort of look at this and I think I kind of like part of me and I don't own shares of this or any other airline. But we talked a little bit about this earlier, David. Part of me is rooting for them to get a little bit of pain here. Yeah, they need to feel <laughs> feel some some sting, some pain after yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and but but I'm it also would not surprise me given the way the airline industry runs as a whole. It would not surprise me. If three months from now we were talking about, yep, it was another good quarter for United Continental. I don't think it's going to matter one whit, really, to tell you the truth. No, I mean, so I was doing some reading before coming in the studio, and uh, there's a uh, an episode of Freakonomics from last June called "Why Does Everyone Hate Flying," and the answer is because it's probably because it's become like mass transit. I mean, the cost of air of an of a flight. All in, and that includes everything: inflation, baggage fees, buying your meal. Everything is half of what it was 30 years ago, and uh, the safety record of airlines is tremendously good. the uh, The last two accidents with major airlines in the U.S. major U.S. airlines. Uh, the last one was in the Asiana flight in, coming into San Francisco. Three people died. One of them was uh, killed on the ground after being hit by an emergency vehicle. 
So only two passengers died from the crash. Before that, it was 2001, some 12 years earlier, when there were about 265 people killed on the uh, American Airlines flight out of JFK that for a while people were thinking was shot down, right? Right. That one. Uh, So in that 12-year span, 442,600 people were killed on U.S. roads. And so, I mean, mass transit is what airlines are. And when you get that, you get low fares, which is very important for a lot of people. But you also get a lot of inconvenience, and occasionally you get beaten up. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> That's what we learned a well, couple weeks and, ago. And, and along those lines, a big part of this story with United was the whole, you know, really shining a light on overbooking, on airlines right. overbooking. But then once the statistics start to come to light, you find out that, Yes, technically this still goes on. It goes on a lot less than it used to. That is true. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I again, I it, I sort of feel like nothing would shock me three months from now in terms of the results. In part because I think one X factor at play here is the United States Congress, which it would not surprise me at all if they just decided, you know, what's going to make us look good? Because I mean, few few things have as low an <laughs> approval rating in America as the United States Congress. What's going to make us look good is hauling Oscar Munoz, the CEO of United Continental, in front of a you know in front of us at a hearing and just beating him up for a while. And that's probably going to happen. But uh, what I think would be better for the industry and for passengers too is if uh, competitors started coming out with uh, ways to mitigate a lot of this. Uh, bad press that everyone is getting. And it's not just United. I mean, United is the one in the crosshairs right now, uh, but uh, they all do basically that. And their their carriage of contracts, which is what the ticket is, allow them to do almost anything they want to you. Right. Uh, but uh, but they can, but they can uh, if they're smart, they're going to say, as, uh, to, to, to differentiate themselves, hey, we don't do this. <laughs> we uh, don't beat you up. <laughs> well, I mean, but uh, I've heard that uh, uh, food is coming back to one of them. Delta, maybe, uh, is coming back in the economy class, uh, and you don't have to buy it. I mean, your ticket's going to go up a little bit, yeah, but uh, a lot of people grumble about, oh, I have to buy this box of whatever three week old bread or whatever <laughs> so, so and i mentioned this to each of you individually this morning what we've seen businesses in other industries do very well with loyalty programs we see it certainly with with food and beverage why don't the airlines go bigger into the loyalty programs why do, when i'm when i'm on a flight and i hear they make the obligatory announcement of like, hey, if you want our frequent flyer card, we'll give you 10,000 miles. Why don't they just right out of the gate astonish everyone with, you know what, we're going to give you 100,000 miles just to, just to get you into that program? Because to go back to Netflix for a second, one of the mistakes I think investors make about Netflix is in thinking that video streaming is a zero-sum game. It's not like buying a car. When you go out to buy a car, one automaker is going to win your business, and all the others are going to lose. When it comes to video streaming, you're, yeah, you're going to have an Amazon Prime account, you're going to have a Hulu account, you're going to have a Netflix account. In terms of the airlines, I feel like if one of them gets smart and figures out a way to really lock people into some sort of loyalty program that rewards customers, they're going to be a big winner. Well, I think you're describing Southwest, at least more than any of the other major airlines in the U.S., and Southwest has been an incredible performer 
not not just in airlines, but it, across. I think the S and P five hundred is like the, one of one of the best performing or the best performing stock over the past thirty years since it went public in the late seventies. And Southwest, I think, has really locked down that loyalty program. I have a Southwest card. I I prefer to fly Southwest if they have a route between the cities I'm flying to because, and, and I think that is an important point because for me, like I kind of lose track of like United, Delta, American. It's like, okay, I know I book with them. I'm probably going to be delayed. I'm going to get some <laughs> warm or OJ on the flight. <laughs> it's not going to be a pleasant experience, but it'll get me where I need to be probably just a little bit later than I'd like. Um, and I actually had a friend who came up to me last week and said, hey, do you see that video of, of what happened with, with that Delta flight? I'm like, you mean the United flight? And I think that, that's <laughs> really what it comes down that's to. That's telling. Is that, yeah. yeah. The, 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 I don't think there's a whole lot of brand differentiation at the end of the day. Uh, with, with some of those airlines, but I think Southwest they've done a good job with that loyalty program, and one of the the perks of that is Southwest doesn't make their flights available be, uh, on third party platforms like Expedia or Priceline. People have to go to Southwest site, and it just reinforces the brand that way. When you have a positive experience, then then I, I think you get a, a, a loyal customer base. And I think therein lies the answer to your question, Chris, is commoditization. I mean, those airline miles that can be transferred across airlines, uh, you can get them from almost any credit card uh, you want. I mean, so they're so cheap and they're not they're no longer worth what they used to be worth. Before we dip into the full mailbag, I got to say thanks to Warby Parker for supporting today's episode. Warby Parker makes high-quality, stylish and affordable glasses that start at only $95 including prescription lenses. And they make buying glasses online easy and risk-free with their home try-on program, which is, fortunately, one of those things that works exactly the way it sounds. The home try-on program allows you to order five pairs of glasses that are shipped directly to your door. You can try them on in the comfort of your own home. You can get feedback from your family, your friends, your colleagues. What you do is you keep the frames for five days before sending them back and the, that's also free because you use the prepaid return shipping label. There's no obligation to buy. They've got great designs, a variety of designs. They've got sunglasses. And when you place your order for prescription glasses, you'll have them back in your hands within 10 business days. I actually got mine faster than that. I, I did this a couple of months ago. Uh, so I am a Warby Parker customer. And I got my prescription from my ophthalmologist. I did the whole home try-on thing, which was great. I got, you know, my basically just tried on the different frames, and you know, and then my kids got the opportunity to go. No, no, yes, those. Pick the no, not those. Um, it was really great, and it was very simple, and I didn't have to go anywhere. They just shipped it right to my home. Uh, last but not least, for every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker distributes a pair of glasses to someone in need. So that's nice as well. You can try out Warby Parker for yourself and see how good you look in their frames. Go to warbyparker.com/fool to order your own free home try-on kit with free shipping all around and make sure it's lowercase fool. F O O L, lowercase fool. That's warbyparker.com/fool to order your free home try-ons. No, we are uppercase fools here. <laughs> yeah, you know, in this case for Warby Parker, you got to go lowercase. Okay. Marketfoolery at fool.com is our email address from Brooke McCoy. The playoffs have started in the NHL and the NBA. Most major arenas uh, arenas are named after a public company, and in some cases, public companies have actually have ownership stakes in the teams themselves. MSG owns the New York Knicks and the Rangers. Bell Canada and Rogers jointly own the Toronto Maple Leafs, Raptors, Toronto FC, and so on. 
We hear all the time about how major league sports franchises seem to do nothing but go up in value. Does a company having a stake in a team help make it a more attractive investment? And as a shareholder, how much value does a company lending its name to a major arena really generate? Are people really opening checking accounts at TD because the Boston Bruins and Celtics play there? I'm a longtime listener and love your work. Thanks for everything. Uh, thank you for listening and, th- and thanks for a great question. Um, so, so really, two questions there. Let's let's take the first one. A company having a stake in a sports team does that make it a more attractive investment? I, I don't know. MSG is one of those things that's just kind of it's not a particularly well-run company, and certainly the the stock performance over the last five years has trailed the market. So, I'm, I, David, I'm sort of tempted to say it depends. Yeah, honestly, it's never something I've thought about investing in a company, like thinking it's more or less attractive because they have a stake in a sports team. It's never actually crossed my mind. So maybe maybe I should pay more attention to it. But in general, I don't think it's a huge differentiator with a company. I, I don't think it's very common for a public company to to own a stake in a sports team. MSG Not very is common a, at all. Yeah. So yeah, MSG's owned uh, the Rangers. Uh, once I said from 1926 on to the present. So I mean, but. I've never even cons- I didn't know that until I looked it up. <laughs> so, what about the second question, which is uh, a company slapping its name on an arena, um, and you know the way it's phrased is how much value does a company lending its name? Let's be clear, they're not lending their name; they're paying for that right. Yeah, it's uh, part of their marketing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's part of their marketing, and I, I, I mean, I, I think it's. Um, I was just going to say I, to answer the question about like I don't think people are opening checking accounts at TD no. just because you know the Bruins and the and the Celtics play there, but but maybe it works from you know because in addition to slapping their name on the arena, they presumably also get tickets. They get a you know a luxury box or suite or something like that. Well, the executives might, but I think it's I think it's <laughs> like the uh, Carla's Diners Little League sponsorship writ large. So I mean, I mean, it was in in very large on some very, cities, very right? large, yeah. Uh, but uh, it's you you get uh, free mention of your your company name. I mean, it's always the Verizon Center here in D.C. for basketball yeah. and hockey, and or the new what the SunTrust uh, uh, Park in in Cobb County in Cobb County, yes, Cobb County. in Atlanta, where the Atlanta Braves play. Although, as as Washington Nationals diehard fan, our producer Dan Boyd said, referred to them the Cobb County Braves. Right. So, uh, so you get mentioned that way, and you get on-site promotion, and you get off, and it's a way to to say, hey, we're in your community, we're paying attention to you guys. Uh, but other than that, and advertising and, and name recognition, I I don't think it's much. Yeah, it's really just a form of brand advertising. So with that kind of advertising, like with the Verizon Center in DC, which will be renamed at some point next year, Verizon stepping away from that deal. But uh, there's really no way for Verizon to measure the return on investment there. Like how many people signed up as a result of seeing oh Verizon on the side <laughs> of right. the building. Compared to something like marketing on Facebook or Google, where you can measure the clicks, you can measure the engagement. Uh, Slapping your name on an arena—that's really just a form of brand advertising. And I think, in my own case, it's hard for me to think of a time where that was really effective for me as a consumer. Like growing up, the the Sacramento Kings, my beloved Kings, they played in Arco Arena, but 
you know, we still bought gas from Chevron. It's like, well, <laughs> it didn't really mean anything. They they renamed it to Power Balance Pavilion Sleep Train Arena. Now it's the Golden One Center at their new arena. So, Boy, that's a lot of corporate It went through names. a lot of names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they burned through it. But, yeah, it, it's just a form of brand advertising. I I kind of question whether it really is the, the best place for a company uh, to allocate their marketing dollars. And I think that's why you generally see these big-name brands that have <laughs> millions to throw at this. Well, and that's the thing. That. I think you want to look at, well, how is a separate of the money that is being paid? Because I, I think it's a legitimate question if you're looking at an investment and saying, okay, how are they spending their money? If if this is a you know if company X is doing a good job with their business, then you tend to overlook something like that. On the flip side, this email question reminds me of an article that our colleagues Tim Hansen and Brian Richards wrote in 2006 because in 2006 the NBA Finals featured the Dallas Mavericks against the the Miami Heat. And at the time, the Dallas Mavericks played in the American Airlines Center, and the Miami Heat played in American Airlines Arena. Hedging their bets. <laughs> Hedging well done. Their, yeah. So, and as they pointed out in that article, American Airlines was staggeringly unprofitable and spending, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to ten million dollars a year. You know, so that's a situation where you're, if you're an American Airlines employee or shareholder, you're like, hey, folks, what are we doing here? Why are we spending this money? When we could use, we could probably find a better use for eight to ten million dollars. I mean, a company really should be able to re- measure its return on invested investment. And Brian or uh, David, your your, your point about uh, being able to measure clicks or something like that, or or uh, click throughs on direct send emails or whatever, that's easy to measure and and, and get your measure on investment. But how much really can you get uh, measure your Radio spend or your te- television spend or your arena spend. I mean, and so I think yeah, those are all kind of their own bucket of yeah, brand advertising. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think it's just a way of keeping the name in in consumers' minds. Uh, I mean, Coca Cola has this huge advertising budget. Everyone in the world knows Coca Cola because of that budget. But and how long would that disappear? How long would it take for that to disappear if they stopped advertising? And maybe that's what they're worried about. I remember proposing, I think, on this podcast a couple of years ago that I just think it would be interesting if if Coca Cola or Pepsi just decided for one month we're not spending the time, <laughs> just like we're just going to pocket the money, we're just going to put it aside. Would the world stop spinning? The world would not stop spinning, and people would still be buying and consuming those two beverages. I'll switch to Shasta. <laughs> All right, Jim Mueller, David Kratzman, thanks for being here, guys. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.